This is SMQB's episode 14. Just a quick disclaimer. Uh, anybody who's on a Zoom call today knows that there were some issues with audio. I think we got through our pod okay, but if you hear any distortion, uh, you can blame Zoom uh, for that. Uh, it's still a great episode. We're going to introduce you to the SMQB's greatest plays of all time bracket competition. Uh, talk a little bit about Hall of Fames today, what it means to get in, what the criteria are. Should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame? That'll get the uh, blood flowing for some people. We take a look at the NBA playoffs and the jockeying for position that's happening. And then a really, really interesting discussion, uh, punchable face of the week, talking about uh, European soccer. Uh, no, seriously, it is fascinating and you won't want to miss it. Also, hey, if you like us, uh, give us a review, five stars, please, uh, and tell a friend to listen to us. Anyway, have fun. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. SMQB's episode 14. I had nothing to say about Philadelphia Eagle quarterbacks until House put his background up. I'm just thinking that neither quarterback who had anything to do with the Super Bowl or getting the team there is with them anymore. And it's just too easy to, to not bring it up and point it out to you this week. Now our listeners have to look at us on Facebook just so they can see it. I, I literally had no idea how I was going to bring the Eagles into this and you set it up for me. Thank you for that, House. You're welcome. So there's a lot to talk about this week. Everybody's doing well, I hope. Um, but uh, House, why don't you lead us into uh, a little project the SMQBs are going to take on? Yeah, I mean, we were so miserable in our NCAA projections that we decided to create our own bracket. But but we have bracket envy here at the SMQBs, but we're not going with basketball teams. We have long debated over the greatest whatever, greatest player, greatest moment, greatest shot, greatest whatever. So we are going to introduce our listeners to the greatest play of all time bracket. Um, and we need you, the listeners, to help us fill this out. Um, today, we're going to get the bracket started. Um, we're not going to seed them quite yet, but we're just going to nominate five moments, plays, uh, the greatest of all time each. Each of the SMQBs will do that. And then you'll see on our Facebook and Twitter handle that actually we need all of our listeners to chime in because I'm sure uh, all of you have some good ideas as to what ranks for you as the greatest play of all time. So I'm going to kick it off here with Rooster. Um, Mike Fallon, what are your greatest five moments that you want to start out with? I realize these might not be your greatest of greatest of greatest, but just ones that you want to get kicked off into the bracket. Yeah, they were great. They were great for me as a fan. They may not be everyone's. Very selfish. Of, and I can tell you, I, I could have populated this whole thing with Derek Jeter plays, and, and I decided to leave uh, a few out. But <clears throat> number one would be the flip, where Jeter uh, in, the, uh, in the 2001 ALDS against the uh, A's, there's a, there's a, the, the Yanks are up one nothing in the seventh. There's a hit to deep right field, and the right fielder for the Yankees misses both cutoff men, 
And Jeter is so smart, he puts himself in position to be the third cutoff, catches this thing barehanded, and flips it to Posada at home base, who tags out Jeremy Giambi. That's my number one. Play. Number two would be the Jeter play in 2004 against the Red Sox in the 12th inning, where he sprinted from shortstop to catch that short pop up in, in shallow left and was going so fast that he crashed into the stands and cut his face open and had to have seven stitches. Um, my favorite play as a child was the immaculate reception in, uh, in, the, in, the, in Decem- December of 72 when the Steelers and the Raiders were playing for the AFC divisional playoffs. And the Steelers were down to the last 30 seconds and Terry Bradshaw threw a pass to Frenchie Fuqua that either hit Fuqua in the hands and bounced or hit Jack Tatum, the defender in the helmet, and bounced. And the ball bounced and was just about to hit the ground. And Franco Harris scoops it up and runs it in for the winning touchdown. Um, Something that tells me that's going to be a high seed. Yeah, that plays controversial and amazing all at the same time. <clears throat> Are we going to seed these later, by the way? Oh, yeah. yeah. We're going to see in here on milk. All right. Uh, next would be the 1981 NFC championship game, much to Pope's chagrin, uh. where the 49ers pulled it out with 58 seconds left when Montana threw that touchdown pass to Dwight Clark, who made the leaping catch in the end, in, end zone, the catch for a 28-27 win. And then my number one play is 1984, the miracle in Miami, when Boston College was playing the University of Miami, who were the repeat or the defending national champions. And Flutie had to hurl a 48-yard Hail Mary into the end zone to my man, Gerard Phelan, who caught it for the touchdown. Any relation? Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Well, I'll just... (laughs) Irish. Those are... Yeah. Those are some standout memorable plays that all of which I think when we have our seating meeting are going to have some pretty high seeds. Maybe not the Jeter ones, but uh, the other ones for sure. I, I was anyway, surprised. I was surprised to hear him bring up so much Yankee stuff after the weekend the Yankees just had. I thought you would have been more quiet. Sweet. Back not really. Have Get the 162 games, baby. There are 162 games. Ugh. We're just feeling of, our oats. Well, maybe if they have a homer bracket, I'm sure those will qualify. No. I can't. We our middle <laughs> relievers have given up about 18 runs an inning going into that series. I'm um, unbelievable, Rooster. How did you well, lose? Speaking know. of sweepers, let's go to the vacuum himself, the Tampa Bay Rays fan, Patrick Michler, the milk. Give us your five. <sighs> well, okay. I want to preface this that all of mine, as you'll you'll find out are not all like game winning moments and all that kind of stuff. They're just like memorable moments for me. You guys will probably make these 16 seeds. So (laughs) screw off. I'm going number one, the Kevin Mitchell barehanded catch. You guys didn't like it earlier, but that to me is a good one. 1989 Ozzie Smith hits it. He overruns the ball. He puts his arm up barehanded catch. I, I don't know. I, I still to this day, you know, I was a young 12 year old then with aspirations of major league baseball. So I remember that clearly number two, Randy 
Johnson hitting a bird and killing it uh, in the <laughs> spring training game. Come on. Wonderful moment. <laughs> Says something about well, your childhood. I saw, I think. by the way, I, I <laughs> saw. childhood is disturbing. <laughs> by the way, I saw, saw something that said more people look up that play than just Randy Johnson, baseball player on Google. <laughs> so that's what he's known for. Uh, number three, Music City Miracle. Titans, Bills. Bills had a 16 15 lead. Frank Wycheck. You don't hear that name very often. Threw that lateral pass to who caught it? Uh, Dyson. Yes. Dyson wow. catches it. The rest is history. Won't be the last time you hear that name today, too. That's right. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Uh, number my fourth one, by the way, was Doug Flutie and Fallon stole that. So I, I, uh, well, I replaced it. No. Well, yeah, I did. Not this one. My next one is Marshawn Lynch beast run against the Saints 2010 NFC wildcard game. They were seven and nine going into that game. Huge upset. Kind of started the whole 12th man thing in, in Seattle. Is that the game that they like registered an earthquake or something? It might have been. Yeah. I think it was like on a seismograph or whatever near. And then this was my replacement. I was memorable to me, maybe because I like the 30 for 30 documentaries, but when the the Colombian soccer player scored on the on his own goal in the in the 94 World Cup, and then Pablo uh, took him out a couple months later. Uh, same so, last name, the two Escobars. Andres no, Escobar. We definitely have you as a committee chair for the disturbing bracket. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I've got right. I've got of, bird deaths. Yeah, a lot of death. <laughs> the things it's, that entertain you. I don't know. Colombian drug lords. <laughs> All right. So now we head over to our Southwest Regional where we have Brian Pope, the Pope from Dallas. Tell us about your top five. So I'm going to start off with the great Cal Stanford big game finish. <laughs> If y'all will remember in 1982, Stanford had just gone ahead and all they had to do was kick the ball and not allow a touchdown coming the other direction. But Cal got it and everybody remembers they did a number of laterals, probably two of them illegal uh, passes, went down the field. The Stanford band uh, thought the game was over. They had come out onto the field and in the commotion, uh, the Cal player was able to get the final lateral run down to the end zone and to cap it off. If y'all remember, took the football and spiked it on, I think it was a trombone guy uh, for the Stanford band. Um, clearly, you know, that was the play uh, has always been talked about when you see any NFL team or college team, try to win a game at the very last of either a half or a end of the game. Uh, they always harken back to uh, that great 1982, the play uh, number two is going to be, a definite seared into my memory as a kid watching the world series, 1975 Carl Yastrzemski as the midnight bells were tolling in Boston, excuse me, Carlton Fisk. I, I screwed that one up. Carlton Fisk, uh, the catcher um, Pudge hit a home run as the bells were starting to toll. 
uh, in uh, Boston, barely got over the foul pole in fair territory. And if you'll remember, uh, he was jumping up and down, motioning his arms to make the ball stay fair. Uh, that won the game, uh, game six of the World Series against the Reds. Unfortunately, the Red Sox came back the next night and lost in game seven to the Reds. Didn't didn't get rid of their curse until 2004. But that was a great memory um, and one of the great plays in World Series history. Another World Series play that stands out. Now, I was not alive for this one, but has uh, been played many times is the great catch by the Say Hey Kid, Willie Mays, as he's going back in center field. Game's tied 2-2, first game in the polo grounds of the World Series, 1954, against the Indians, makes a circus catch over his head, running uh, full steam, looks up, ball comes up, uh, and he catches it, uh, puts his glove out, catches it, turns around, throws it back towards the infield, um, and I believe they ended up doubling off some guy. But uh, as a result of that, they go to extra innings, um, they win that in game and then go on to win the World Series. So uh, number two, and I guess we get into my Homer category, <laughs> would be the 1998 NBA championship clinching shot by Michael Jordan against the Utah Jazz as he uh, does a crossover dribble and breaks Byron Russell's ankles uh, and rises up and makes a, uh, a perfect uh, shot swish. Um, Malone, uh, Stockton missed a three-pointer at the buzzer, uh, and the the Bulls won their sixth uh, and last championship with Michael Jordan that year. And then the number one, and I have it on my virtual background, our Facebook followers can see that later, uh, is the original Hail Mary pass. 1975 playoffs against the Minnesota Vikings. Um, division series Cowboys are down 14 to 10 towards the end of the game. Uh, Drew Pearson is open for momentarily and uh, Staubach uh, throws it as far as he can. And uh, Pearson has a couple defenders who uh, get in his way, but somehow the pa- the pass bounces off of one and he catches it uh, and walks into the end zone. Um, Cowboys win, go on to, uh, beat the Rams in the uh, uh, NFC Championship, and then they lose to the Steelers that year in Super Bowl. Later, when Roger Staubach was asked about, how did you complete that pass? He said, I closed my eyes, and I said a Hail Mary, and I just threw it. And that is, I guess, uh, kind of apropos to the Hail Flutie um, that we see down the road as well, or any Hail Mary pass for that matter. Uh, goes back to the original Hail Mary. So that's my number one greatest play for this week's seedings. Five memorable moments from the Pope. We move over to the East region, home of the Big East man himself. Chris Nace, give us five memorable moments. All right. So uh, again, these are, you know, a little, a little different, I think, but um, in no particular order, because we'll do our seedings later, I guess. Um, the 2007 Fiesta Bowl, Boise State uh, versus Oklahoma, which Boise State, I think, jumped out to a big lead in the game. And then uh, Oklahoma came back and it ends up in overtime. And uh, I guess Boise State, I, I think this was an overtime game, but it doesn't matter because the way they won it was 
a hook and ladder to score a touchdown when they needed a touchdown. And then they decided to follow up the hook and ladder touchdown with the old Statue of Liberty play uh, with the guy who ran the ball in. Uh, I can't remember his name. We'll, we'll, someone will remember it. But he literally crossed the goal line, I think, and went over and proposed to a cheerleader who he was dating. I mean, it was like the greatest fiesta bowl of small school, smaller school at the time. They were definitely the big underdog and kind of what put Boise State on the map, actually, against you know your blue blood of Oklahoma. And they did it with trick plays and style and even the, the guy walking off marrying a cheerleader. So it doesn't get much better than that. Um, an iconic moment. For my next one is the great Allen Iverson crossing up Michael Woo-hoo. Jordan. The whole um, the stare down, the whole uh, setup of Iverson facing Jordan with the ball and what would happen. And uh, it's just sort of one of those iconic basketball moments that had uh, sort of two different generations, certainly two different uh, styles and approaches to off the court. Uh, and it just, uh, it was a great, great moment. Goat one that, goat. Yeah. One that I don't think um, many people will remember or come up with, but it's probably one of the most uh, underappreciated plays of all time was Steven Souza Jr. Uh, laying out, and this is what you can see on my background right now, but laying out in the top of the ninth to make a diving catch for the third out of a game the last game of the season before the playoffs to preserve Jordan Zimmerman's no hitter for the nationals and the combination of uh, the catch, uh, the catch alone would have been an unbelievable play, but he had just been put into the game for defensive purposes in the ninth inning and to go back and have that be, you know, the last, the last out to preserve a no hitter uh is something else Zimmerman thought for sure it was a hit there's no this guy had no business catching this ball uh and brought it down and and that was how the season uh the regular season ended that year going back uh, yeah that's a homer one (laughs) going back uh um a little further but also sticking with baseball the shot heard around the world uh Bobby Thompson off of the Dodgers Ralph Bronca 1951 to win the pennant uh I guess a, a three run homer uh, at the polo grounds, uh, certainly a classic that will, should be a very high seed, I would think. And then the last one, another maybe forgotten one, but certainly this is maybe in the milk category of, of a moment that I remember was Jason Lezak in the 2008 Beijing Olympics in the, in the four by 100 men's relay tracking down. Uh, the French guy, and remember, the French had been talking trash leading up to this race about how they this was their race and they were going to beat the Americans and they were going to stop uh, Michael Phelps from having eight gold medals. This was the one race that was going to be really tight. And somehow Lezak inched it out in one of the great finishes in Olympic swimming. And those are my top five uh, nominees. Guys came up with some good ones. Um, like one. We're going to move we're going to move over to the house region um, where yours truly will introduce five memorable moments. I'm going to go in chronological order. Number one, which is, I hope going to be a very high seed is the miracle on ice game, United States versus USSR 
Soviet Union, Lake Placid, New York, Winter Olympics 1980, seven-seated amateur-filled team of U.S. upsets, shocks the world, and beats the nasty Soviets to propel them to – that was actually a, a semifinal game to get into the gold medal game where they, they stomped for the gold medal victory over Finland. But that was that's my number one. Number two, moving forward in time, is the hand of God play, the play that put one of the greatest soccer players to ever live on the map. World Cup, June 22nd, 1986, Argentina versus England in Mexico. Diego Maradona jumps to head a ball and uh, hits it with his hand. We don't have the technology that we have today, speaking of last week's pod on that stuff. And the legend began, Maradona said, I hit a little bit with the head of Maradona, a little with the hand of God. And that became known as the hand of God play, which would mark his entire career. The third is also in the soccer realm, uh, which was a game-changing play for sport, July 1st, 1999. The sold-out Rose Bowl for the Women's World Cup, and the U.S. women put their face on the map when they win with a game-winning goal on a penalty kick by Brandy Chastain, and everybody remembers she ran down the field, removed her shirt to just reveal her black tank top, and that became the cover of everything, and I don't think women's sports really have ever been the same ever since. That was a great Uh, World Cup. Great, great event. Number four is really, I think, maybe my favorite tackle of all time and certainly the best tackle in Super Bowl history. Super Bowl 34 in Atlanta, January 30th, 2000, the Rams versus the Titans. The Rams had stormed to a 16-0 lead. The Titans evened it up at 16. The Rams were up 23-16. The Titans had the ball on the Rams' 10-yard line with basically no time on the clock and Steve McNair throws to Kevin Dyson and Mike Jones tackles him at the one. And I will just never forget Dyson stretching out. And I thought maybe he had reached it, but that was it. The game was over and that tackle preserved the victory in the Super Bowl championship for the Rams. And my fifth and final one is the greatest play of all time. Certainly the greatest Super Bowl play of all time. Super Bowl 52, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota against Milk. I think you'd agree the greatest quarterback of all time for sure. Right, Milk? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so we were taking on the vaunted Tom Brady, and it was 15 to 12, fourth and goal. And Big big Balls Doug goes for it from the uh, two-yard line. And, um, you know, Nick Foles runs up to the offensive line. It's a direct snap to Corey Clement, who flips it to – uh, Trey Burton, who then throws it to Nick Foles, which is behind me. They go up 22-12 at the half, and we defeat uh, Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, which I can't believe we did that. But those are our 20 plays from the SMQBs. Those are our memorable moments. We need you to find us on Facebook, find us on our Twitter feed, and list your plays because we really want this to be a 64 play field that's filled out by our listeners. And I turn it back over to you, Mr. Bison. Yeah, well, that'll be a lot of fun. Um, looking forward to that and, and seating them and, and all that. But um, I want to shift a little bit, just talk about one, you know, sort of uh, maybe maybe two stories from the weekend that, that are interesting when compared to each other. So you had Pete Rose turn 80 
uh, in the last week or so. That's crazy. Uh, uh, yeah, right. That is crazy. Um, uh, I actually had a chance to meet and speak to Pete Rose one time when I was when I was about fifteen. Uh, that that was interesting. Uh, and then also you had uh, uh, Julian Edelman uh, retiring, announcing his retirement from the NFL. And the thing that's kind of interesting about this, and I, I want to get people's takes on, is there were a lot of people talking about Edelman for the Hall of Fame. And I, I thought the juxtaposition of these two uh, against each other with Rose, of course, uh, not permitted uh, and banned from the Hall of Fame for uh, his gambling situation and, and uh, who's not in the baseball hall compared to a guy like Edelman, who I'm not really sure what his Hall of Fame credentials are. And I think it's it's very interesting you know, are we, what are we doing with our halls these days? What are, what are we doing with them guys? I mean, are, are, have we dropped the standards? Is it all about uh, if you're a guy on a team who made a big play in a championship game that you're going to be a hall of fame, a hall of famer at this point? I mean, what, what are, what are we doing? Anybody? I, I think you're right. I think Edelman had some hall of fame moments in his career, but he didn't have a hall of fame career and his advocates point to just what you said his postseason performance. Yeah. So he's he's got he's second to uh, Jerry Rice in postseason catches and passing yards. Um, but his career stats aren't there. They're just not there. As as I mean, his his stats are not even close to Heinz Ward, who's not in, or Sterling Sharp, who's not in. His stats are most similar to Fred Bolitnikoff who is in, but Fred Belitnikoff played in the seventies when teams ran the ball a ton and didn't throw much. And yet, even so Fred Belitnikoff had, uh, 2000 more, um, receiving yards plus and 40 more touchdowns in his career than Edelman. So, you know, I just don't think Edelman has the body of work. I think he's had some great performances in the postseason which tends to happen when you're the favorite receiver of Tom Brady uh, yes, sir. on a, on a team without any good wide receivers. But yeah, I don't think he's, I don't think he's hall of fame material. His numbers are nuts, by the way, in the playoffs, like yeah. the only, the only what better wide receiver is Jerry Rice. Yeah. I think someone just mentioned that a second ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pay attention, Mel. Pay attention. That's been one of Milk's strengths. He's a great yeah, listener. Moving. <laughs> I'd, I'd zoned you out, man. Oh I just God. think I, I feel like the the fact that we're even talking about Edelman confirms what I have felt for the last few years. That generally speaking, a lot of these sports, the Hall of Fame is getting soft. I really think Hall of Fame should be reserved for performance that is above and beyond that's almost of the sort that you just don't see much of anymore. I feel like now there's a rush to make sure that we get somebody in, things are commercialized, it's shown, you people go, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't think I don't think Edelman um he was definitely involved on some very special teams and I think he was a very good player, a Hall of Fame player. I would never think of his career yeah. in that way. It should be perennial Pro bowlers, uh, first exactly. team pro well, bowlers. And, what is and the actual criteria? All stars. Does does Canton list what is the criteria? 
Does it say? Does it have a bullet point list? I, I doubt it. I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's subject to the will of the writers that get to vote on it. Right. And I don't think the. I I don't think the writers have any criteria other than comparison to other players. You know, I, I'm. It's interesting that Bison brought up the the juxtaposition because we could probably have four shows worth of debate and a lot of angry listeners. But to me, and yes, he brought us a World Series, Pete Rose, in 1980. I think Pete Rose not being in the Hall of Fame is one of the biggest travesties of all Hall of Fames. As a player, you can put whatever asterisk you want. You can tell whatever story you want about gambling and as a manager and all that other stuff. But as a player, when you think of the greatest hitter of all the time, uh, you know, I'm not talking about home runs and RBIs and stuff. I'm just saying you, the greatest contact hitter of all time. It's hard to think of anybody besides Pete Rose. So now we're just going to pretend like he's, you know, the elephant in the corner. He's not there. I don't know. Bison. I mean, you're, yeah. you're a baseball guy. What do you think about Pete Rose? Uh, you know, look, it, uh-huh. it, it, the Pete Rose thing, you know, it also goes into all this, all the steroid guys too, of course. Right. I mean, right. And, and it's a little bit of a different conversation between the two of them. But, you know, I'm with you, House, on this one. I just don't know how you keep them out. I mean, it's it's you got to at least acknowledge what he did with his gambling and all that if you put him into the hall. But it's it's not a Hall of Fame if that guy's not in there. It's just not. You almost um, cheapen the award for the other players who are in there when you just look the other way on someone like that. And, and, uh, and there's a lot of players you could make that argument for too. I mean, I, I guess I don't think shoeless Joe Jackson's ever been uh, permitted into the hall either. Although there was some effort made a, a few years ago and I, I don't think that ever went anywhere. Uh, and of course, then you got to talk about the steroid era of baseball. I mean, that was an entire era of baseball where we're going to just leave out uh, the most dominant players. Um, and, you know, Come on, it's a joke that the league didn't know what was going on back then. Um, they looked the other way because home runs were selling tickets and making the game interesting. So, you know, I agree with you. It, it's uh, it, it's really strange what's happening with Hall of Fames now. I do wonder what effect uh, fantasy sports is having mm-hmm. on on uh, the way we look at the Hall of Fame, um, and and also the the other thing is all these uh, saber metrics and, and the advanced statistics uh, where people can go back and compare careers uh, using different statistics. What is that doing to how we look at our halls? It's interesting. You know, I used to totally agree with house on this one and think that Pete Rose should be let in. And the more people I've talked to and the more I've thought about it, I mean, there's no doubt he had a hall of fame career. I mean, the guy's the all time hit leader. Uh, won three batting titles, 17 all-star appearances at five different positions. He was the NL MVP one year. No doubt. He should have mar- He should have just walked right in in year five. But, the and, you know, the Major League Baseball has a rule posted on every clubhouse that says no gambling. That's the rule. And the punishment for violating that rule is only one, one year unless they find out that you have bet uh, on a team in which for which you had a duty to perform. So, so when Bart Giamatti announced a lifetime ban, Pete Rose agreed to it. 
And the reason he agreed to it is he knew that in one year, I think it was 1987, he had bet on the Reds, or I think that was the team he was on in 87. Um, he was back with the Reds from the Phillies, right? So he had yeah, he bet on that. Reds. He had bet on them over 50 times that year and admitted to it. And, to and win it, or and, lose, though. Well, I probably to win, which which I sort, think of, a sort of softens the blow, obviously. But still, it's the it's the impropriety that's being created there, the appearance of a serious impropriety. And I mean, uh, I I think it's the same thing with these uh, with these uh, steroid guys. There's a clear policy against steroid use, but none of them are actually inel- ineligible right now. They're not going to get in because the writers won't vote them in, but they are eligible to be voted upon, whereas Pete right. Rose is not. That's the where I have a problem. I don't That's think any point. of them should come in, but if you're gonna if you're gonna allow votes up or down on bonds, then you have to allow votes on Rose. Strong, strong point, Rooster. I love that. That's a great take. There's just such a big difference between the steroid guys and Pete Rose and I, I mean the they were taking a substance that made their batting averages right, better. Their right. home runs go farther. Pete Rose didn't do anything like that. Right. He was just great, a great, great baseball point. player. And, and uh, for me personally, you know, I, I like to gamble, you know, a little here and there. <laughs> uh, if you're betting to win, then you're, what's the big problem here? If he's betting to lose and he's intentionally striking out, dropping balls, not getting hits, but the guy clearly wasn't doing that. Well, the concern concern is you get so in the hole with your bookie on all these bets on your team to win that suddenly they're like, okay, we're coming after your house. We're going to break your wife's kneecaps and we need you to throw a game. That's that's why that's why there's just an outright ban on it. And maybe he admitted maybe he admitted to that. I don't know. If he did, well, then... he's not the brightest bulb in the world. I mean, he says some, every time people are starting to lean in his direction, he says something stupid. Right. right. He doesn't help that's himself a, out. That's not a criteria for entry to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. The problem is you can't divorce his off field from on field. That's the problem. I mean, if it was just based on his on field performance and statistics, then obviously he would be a first timer ballot. No, no brainer. But. Well, he put himself in that situation by deciding he wanted to be a manager and look what he did. Well, uh, he was gambling more when he was managing, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he was a Which player. Manager. He was a player yeah. manager. He was a player manager. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, we, you know, there's, you can draw a line on, on, on the field, off the field, but then do you, when you talk about off the field, you know, what do you look back at somebody who's uh, who has a, a, you know, domestic violence, domestic assault uh, uh, situation post playing days or during playing days. And then you come back and take them out of a hall or put them back. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff um, that, that leagues look the other way on. Uh, so I don't know. I think this, these are tough arguments. I mean, you can tie yourself up in knots thinking about, about this stuff. And, and um, you know, it's, it's very hard to look just at performance and completely separate the the person from the performance. Uh, that's when you can, you know, you can get in, get in some trouble. So these are tough issues. But the black and white. The, go ahead. Sorry. I was just to say if the hall makes a decision, I just hope they do it 
in the remaining lifetime of Pete Rose. I think it would, if they, for whatever reason, 50 years from now, put in Pete Rose posthumously, it just would not be the same. It really right. wouldn't. Um, right. So whatever they decide, I just hope they make a final decision, do it while he's living. Rooster gets the last, the last say on this. Well, I was going to say, people say, you know, Ty Cobb wasn't a great guy. He was a racist. He beat up a disabled person in the stands one day. Babe Ruth was not a, you know, high moral standing kind of guy. Um, Ricky Henderson was not a great guy, but they didn't violate any rules of the game during their time. And so these, these steroid guys and Rose did. And, and so I think it's easier for major league baseball to, to draw the line with them. Yeah. All right. Well, Interesting, interesting things to think about. Edelman and Rose. That's the uh, the launching point for that conversation. I think today. we all agree Edelman's out, though. He should, or should be. Out. Yeah, should yeah, keep him out. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be. All right, let's uh, let's do a little check in with NBA playoffs. Uh, Pope, yes, what's going on? Let's uh, let's do this up. I know <laughs> Pat, favorite topic. Bill, this Bill is my favorite topic since he's got the Raptors the, here. The Tampa uh, Raptors. Yeah. Are they still here? They're still <laughs> yeah. there. You can go get your tickets. Uh, the playoff picture is starting to shape up as the season starts coming to a wind. I mean, the thing that is uh, maybe most problematic for some of the teams now are the injury bug, uh, which it's interesting because, and Milk, this is for you, by the way. I looked up a stat. NBA said, of course you did stats. I love this. <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. This is my favorite. This is my favorite part of the pod. <laughs> NBA says this year that injuries are actually down 6% from last year. At the same time, wow. if you compare. Interesting. And I was really surprised wow. to see that. But what you're happening is happening this year is you've got the big name players like AD, LeBron, KD, Harden, guys who all, you know, we all know by their nickname or their last name. Joel Embiid, and then Jamal Murray this week went out with an ACL. He's out for the year. Those are some some of the biggest names in the game, and they're starting to impact how their teams are shaping up for where they're going to be seated or even make the playoffs. Um, I mean, if you if you assess the conferences right now, uh, the Lakers are really struggling. Um, I think AD's coming back this week. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, if he's going to be the lift that they need to get out of the middle of the pack in the West, um, you know, the jazz are now they're struggling. They've lost two of four, uh, the Suns and the clips they're they're coming along. Neither of those teams has major injury issues and the nuggets. We don't know how that's going to be impacted by Jamal Murray, but we would assume that they're going to probably start losing some ground. Um, then you got the, uh, the East, you know, the 76ers and the nets have been, neck and neck ever since uh, uh, the Nets, you know, went all in uh, with the Harden trade. And uh, it looks like the bug injury bug might get them though, ultimately, because they're down a game and a half. Now um, they've lost a big game a couple weeks ago uh, to, to Philly. Uh, KD went out recently with another uh, knee issue. Ironically, not the one that he had been having issues with uh, and Harden is off and on. And so, you know, it could be because of the injury bug. That's why those guys lose. Uh, and then you got the, the Hawks, the Celtics, and yes, the Knicks who are surging in the East Hawks six Celtics, in a row. Hawks and Celtics wow. are Eight of 10 and the Knicks are seven of 10. Um, and wow. neither 
of any of those teams have any injury issues. So uh, injuries are definitely going to play a big part in this condensed schedule, uh, which actually we have more games per week now, you know, on average than we did before. So fatigue is going to set in. Um, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting sprint to the finish. And then of course you got the dynamics of the seven through 10 play in tournament. And it looks like my Mavs, uh, are playing themselves right into that slot right now, either seven or eight. They don't have any injury problems. They seem to have problems in, in the uh, upstairs. Not sure why uh, the team chemistry is not better than it is, but uh, they've lost some really bad games. They lost to the Kings last night. They lost to the Rockets last week. Uh, they, they're they not going anywhere. Um, so the tournament play-in will be interesting in both conferences and, you know, right now it could be the Jazz, could be the Suns, could be the Clips as number one in the West. And uh, 76ers and Nets look like they're going to go to the wire in the East. What do you guys think? Can, can we all just agree that that we are all rooting for one thing to happen? And that is for the 76ers to have to play the Washington Wizards. <laughs> that was peaking down there. They're peaking now. Okay, we'll be in agreement there. That's fine Ooh. with me. Yeah. There is a lot, a lot of fun that could happen in that matchup. <laughs> uh, SMQB on SMQB crime. Yeah. The, we have the, a lot of the hottest team in basketball right now is the Celtics. And they, they were horrible all year. I mean, they were unwatchable. They were so boring. And I think Jason Tatum dropped like 56 points or 55 points the other night and followed it up with something in the mid forties, the next game. Um, and they may have uh, they may have resuscitated the career of Jabiri Parker or whatever his name is, guy from Duke. Jabari Parker, yeah. Jabari Parker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're playing they're playing great together right now. All of a sudden, and uh, you know that actually they're who the Sixers don't want to play early in the playoffs. Well, I, I you know I think to Pope's point, you know about the injuries. We've said it before on other pods, like. To win a championship, there's just there's more than just playing great that has to happen for you. Breaks have to go your way. You have to get a lucky bounce, a lucky play, and you have to avoid the injury bug. And listen, LeBron is amazing, but if that team plays in the Western Conference without AD, they're not making it out of the West. I'm saying, I'm telling you now, LeBron cannot win a title with that team without AD. That is a serious injury. And the Nets are amazing, but I think if any one of those three, whether it's Harden or Kyrie or Durant, miss it, I don't think they make it out of the East. So injuries could really decide who makes it to the championship game. And I'm still convinced that both AD and KD have worse injuries than we know. Mm -hmm. And when AD comes back, I think Thursday of this week, keep an eye on that because He's been out for a long time with what was supposed to be just a pulled calf muscle. And, and by the way, who's who's the one team that had a lot of hype going into the season has been sort of cool, but just hanging around there that everybody's talking, you know, nobody's really talking about in the East. Watch the Bucks. Oh, right. the Bucks. That's a good point. Watch mm-hmm. the Nobody Bucks. really has been talking about them. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you get some injuries and and uh, maybe an easier path forward, all of a sudden, you know, look out. I mean, they're they're four back. They probably won't make the top two slots, but uh, they, you know, they might end up playing the Nets and in, uh, in the semis. 
Yeah. All right. It'd be fun to watch. Yeah. Lot, lots of fun uh, NBA stuff coming. It's going to be a fun uh, sort of sprint to the end here. So Golden uh, State is heating up again, too. Yeah. That, that could yep. be fun well, if they make it. Curry yeah. is on fire. Yeah. So, all right. Um, that brings us to everybody's favorite segment. Punchable face of the week. Come on, man. house get up for it well we're doing a couple soccers back to back bring it yeah this is this is something this this is a topic milk milk knows a lot about he's become quite the football that's f-u-t-b-o-l aficionado but uh it's it's hard to escape the story i mean i know that we're so consumed by the four major sports in the u.s but Soccer or football, after all, is the most watched sport in the world. 3.5 billion people watch soccer. Half the world watches it and 250 million people play it. I don't think we appreciate in the States just how big of a deal this story is and this uh, issue of the Super League. The backstory is that there are a number of top leagues Particularly in Europe, you have La Liga in Spain, you have Premier League in the UK, you've got uh, Syria in Italy, you've got League One in France, and these teams pay a lot to get the best players in the world, and they put on the field the best uh, teams in the world, really. And traditionally, what has happened is if you perform well enough in one of these leagues, and it extends beyond that worldwide, if you perform well enough, you can make it into a competition called the Champions League. And the Champions is when you're at the top of your division in one of these world-class leagues. And so really what you want to win as a, as a Super Bowl, as a, you know, uh, the greatest soccer players in the world, what they want to win is they want to win their league title you want to win the premier league and in addition if you can you want to then prove how great you are by taking down the best teams in the world and then ultimately win the champions league one of the cool things about both any of these divisions or champions league is it gives teams the hope and the promise that you you can get there and it doesn't prevent seeing some of the best players on the wor- in the world on that stage But greed uh, will take over sports. And the chair of some of these top teams, Real Madrid from Spain, Juventus from Italy, and somebody you know, Milk, you might know a guy named Joel Glazer, uh, Mm. (laughs) who's who's not only an owner of of the champion Buccaneers, but he's also uh, a part owner of Manchester United. The three of them uh, took on the leadership of this new Super League. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to recruit the very best teams in the world, uh, a total of 15 of them who would become permanent members of the Super League. Five other teams could qualify by winning or competing high enough in their own domestic leagues. And it would form two groups of 10 that would play midweek. 
which happens to be when Champions League plays. And it would be in direct competition with Champions League. These teams to join are each going to be paid $425 million just to sign up to play in the Super League. Oh, um, Now, in case you're worried about these poor teams as to and whether or not they And they're they doing need, a women's league too. They would do a women's league too. But in case you're worried about whether or not some of these teams would make it, here are some of the teams. Uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, and Arsenal. Real Madrid is worth $4.24 billion, Barca $4.02 billion, Man U $3.81 billion, Man City $2.69 billion, Chelsea $2.58 billion, Arsenal $2.21 billion. These are uh, six of the richest sports franchises in the world. They're not hurting for cash. Right Now, what would happen is it would uh, really destroy soccer. The the comments have been fierce and fast. Um, some of the greats that aren't as well known here to us in the States, a, a great play uh, player from Liverpool, uh, Jamie Carragher called it an embarrassment to football. Gary Neville, Man U's uh, famous uh, former captain, called it an absolute disgrace and pure greed. One of the famous managers over there, like their version of, of Belichick, Alex Ferguson, who used to coach Manchester United, said it would end 70 years of football history. Look, we have seen things like this happen before here in the States. We have seen fledgling leagues like the AFL or the ABA or the USFL try to make it and then they couldn't make it. And so the leagues were ended and they were bought up. This is a totally different story. If this happens... Right now, the governing body of European soccer and world soccer, which are UEFA, UEFA, and FIFA, have declared they are coming out swinging. They have declared that none of these players that play for the Super League would be eligible to be playing in any FIFA-sanctioned games or UEFA-sanctioned games, which would mean the European Cup and the Champions League. Or for national teams. They would be toast. So that would mean you would have a World Cup without Ronaldo, a World Cup without Messi, a World Cup without Bruno Fernandez, a World Cup without Mohamed Salah, a World Cup Mary without Kate. Luis Suarez. It goes on and on and on. And it's all because of pure greed that it's going to destroy a sport. Now, here's what's really interesting, which I found interesting because I, I heard that they're talking about already about going to the courts. It turns out that a few years ago, of all sports, in speed skating, two Dutch speed skaters sought to do a breakaway tournament. And the basically the FIFA equivalent of speed skating said, no, you're not allowed to do that. And they appealed to a European sports commission. The player said, you can't restrict us from playing in breakaway leagues. And this European sports commission allowed them to do that. And so this is thought to be, is this the precedent? Is this going to be the rule that decides it, that will allow the Super League to actually occur? But in the days and weeks ahead, you are going to hear some anger. You're going to see some nastiness. And let me tell you, this greed play by these teams and particularly this league, the Super League, for destroying uh, the most popular sport in the world gets my punchable face of the week. I don't know what you guys think. Well, they've already had one casualty. The Tottenham uh, manager was sacked yesterday. 
Uh, and part of the reason he was sacked is because he refused to take the field because Tottenham had decided to join the Super League and he was his, his form of protest. Now, they haven't been playing well. He probably deserved to get sacked anyway. But that's just showing you uh, there's a disconnect between the fan base and the leadership of these clubs. And I think that's going to drive a wedge that's going to be really hard uh, to overcome over over time. Uh, I mean, these are passionate fans and they are they are all furious about what their teams are trying to do. And I think they, I think they totally underestimated the backlash, uh, not only from the fans, but from the world soccer, uh, you know, family. Oh, I think they don't care. I think they absolutely predicted that backlash, which is why the timing of the announcement is no coincidence. There's the great Britain is still pretty much on lockdown for COVID. And so there are no fans at any of these, Premier League games, and um, there aren't even fans, you know, going into shops and restaurants with TVs right now. So they announce it now, and they're not, you know, there's not a bunch of protests yet, but they're coming. They're organizing very rapidly to the point where Boris Johnson came out and condemned yeah. it, and so did Macron. I mean, and Germany, uh, Germ- the German league won't participate, and the French uh, federations won't participate. So. They're not all the way there yet. I, I have a feeling that uh, they're going to hit some real uh, uh, bumps in the road, and maybe they're just trying to get a better deal out of the Champions League. But I don't think so. I think they really think they can pull it off, and it's going to be it's going to be a mess. There's Where? a saying. There's a saying that comes to mind, right? You guys have all heard it. Pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. That's right. right? That's right. That's 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 what this is here, right? And and I guess the question is. Will the fans and house maybe maybe you have insight into this, but will the fans really revolt, or will it be a lot of Twitter, you know, Twitter warriors right. who are out there tweeting their displeasure, but then buying the packages, buying the streaming packages, buying the tickets, and going and going to the games and lining the pockets? So, are, are these teams going to end up pigs, or are they going to end up hogs? But where are, are we- the where do the current players come down on this? Or are they just staying, keeping their mouth shut because they have to? I haven't. So heard. far, a few of a few of them have come out against it. No one, no, I've not heard any player say this is a great idea, and I, I hope we do this. I think a lot of them are playing close to the vest. But you know, about the fans, you know, a few years ago there was an amazing story in the Premier League when a team that had, you know, if you finish in the bottom of the premier league. One of the fun things about that uh, competition and it happens in a lot of these divisions is you literally get relegated. You have to drop down to a league below. And so a team that had previously been relegated the year before makes it back up. Then if you make it, if you're in the bottom, if you're in the second stage league, and then you're in the top of that league, you can get re-promoted. You get promoted back up. So Leicester had moved down in relegation and in the year they were promoted back out of nowhere, they were just like screaming banshees. They won the whole Premier League. It's one of the most famous stories in Premier League history. A team like that would get killed by this. You know, they're left out of this. They can't compete with these teams anymore. With this kind of money, if these teams each get $425 million, forever, you would see these six teams, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City, Man U, Tottenham, those would be the only six teams that matter in Premier League. And the same goes for La Liga with Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid, Barcelona, so I just it really, it really really hurts the small teams. It hurts the underdog. It hurts the fans. You know, to put that four hundred twenty-five million in perspective, 
the winner of the champions league gets like a hundred million. And this is just right. like your, your entry, your entry award. This doesn't include what you would win if you won the, the super league. You yeah. know, I mean, the, the money is just devastating to you're right to the smaller teams. They can't compete with that at all. Well, th- this is disturbing the, the fabric of the game. Uh, and if it really does impact world cup, which it sounds like it might, um, I, I don't know how people are going to react. House, what do you think the end game is? I mean, I know we're only two days into it, but. I, well, I thought the end game, you know, there was this announcement that they were going to, there was this proposal to actually expand champions and add a few more teams. And I thought this was pushback against this, but I think Rooster may be right. I think they're all in on this. The money is huge. Some of the huge banks that are behind this, it's hard to walk away from this. I mean, I suppose there could be some compromise where they lay down if it promises that more money goes into champions just to make champions, which almost all of these teams are in it. And so maybe it just flows more money into champions and all's well that ends well. I, I hope it does, because if, you know, with after COVID and everything with this world needs as a World Cup, that World Cup tournament is one of the greatest sporting spectacles. And if it gets affected by things like that and, you know, it gets diluted in talent, it would be a travesty. Well, who owns who owns Man City? What country is it? UAE. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, so you've got yeah, yeah you've you've got uh, UAE owning Man City. You've got a bunch of American billionaires owning Man U and uh, Liverpool. Um, these these are not people who, you know, care about tradition. They're they're going to maximize the value of these teams one way or the other, and they and you know, the fans be damned, I think, is what, what their mindset is. Because I think they rightly recognize that if you've ever met a fan from of Arsenal or Liverpool on the street, those people are going to go to the game next season, no matter what these billionaires work out. That's true. That's with, with, with UFA and FIFA. Right. True. Greed. It always comes back to greed. It sounds like we've got uh, uh, five five votes though for a big fat uppercut uh, in this case right right so all right guys Boom. i think we got to uh we got to leave it there we'll, we'll keep an eye on the story and and uh hey look i think uh we got a little nfl draft action coming up right maybe we'll can't wait that next, next week. week yeah so, baby. Uh, we'll, next thursday have a little uh little nfl talk next week all right everybody have a good have week have a good week good Talk week all bye bye bye, bye.